Thanks for joining me for part five of Romans 8. Today, we're going to be talking about the life of union, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. But if you haven't been with us before, I really believe that Romans 8 is not only the summit of the book of Romans, I think it might be the greatest systematic theology in all of Paul's epistles. The only thing, those parts of the systematic theology are kind of spread out throughout the chapter. So we've been sort of collating and putting them into order so that we can really understand what Paul wants us to grasp. So we've talked about what I call the baseline, meaning no condemnation and no separation. We've talked about our fall and the reason for the incarnation. We've talked about the cross and the resurrection. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. Today is the life of union. Next time is going to be, uh, what is the call upon our lives as these new creation followers of Jesus? So that's where we've been. That's where we're going. That's where we're going to be today. Let's get into it. Today, I want you to imagine a man of power. And I mean, physical, fleshy, earthbound power who is surrounded by all the worst elements of what the world's brokenness can bring. This man is the lead jailer in a Roman garrison town. All the brutalities of the Roman army, of striving Roman manhood, live in this man. He's about as hard as a person can be. Every day, he meets out punishments that come from imperial sentencings that he has nothing to do with. He is just the one in charge of the imprisonments, beatings, tortures, and death. And that's not to say that he's only one-sided. In fact, because he deals in death so often, he actually has a great curiosity about the other side. He just finds all spiritual matters to be terribly confusing. Is he meant to follow one God? or a whole slew of strange competing gods? Is there a God? And also, what is he to do with his fellow man? How is one to deal with the questions of right and wrong, daily ethics, especially when one is the final word of life and death for others? Really, truth be told, though he does have a family who live rather awkwardly in a house adjoining the prison, This lead jailer feels more often than not entirely alone. His life is just marking time, trying to maintain his personal power, trying to uphold the glory of Rome, whatever that means, as his whole life is rather inglorious. His inner life is a muddle and a mess. Everything around him feels like chaos. He will follow along this rut until he dies. Until earlier this afternoon. He had been standing in the prison's innermost courtyard, waiting for the arrival of two prisoners. They had been stirring up some kind of trouble in the central market, he heard. They had been arrested and sentenced to a beating and a stay in jail, and and here they come. Two regular-looking men. They were led in past the iron grates, into this cobbled inner interior area, and and both were tied by the hands to two stakes standing in the center. Then they were stripped to the waist and beaten with rods over and over again until their backs were utterly flayed, the skin hanging down in ribbons. They were just hit over and over again. Then he himself said, 
enough to the cells. Put them in stocks. Which is exactly when it happened. You see, both the men, when standing to their feet, looked him directly in the eye. And neither man was in any way undone by the beating. Their shoulders went back and they seemed unbowed. There was something otherworldly, something unconquerable in their eyes. He watched them as they went off toward their cell. Well, tonight, at midnight, one of his jailers awakes him. Sir, he says, those two men are singing. Singing? Of what? Of some man they call Jesus. Over and over again, they sing his name, almost laughing. Yet the prisoners are all awake, listening to it all. Our lead jailer throws a robe around his shoulders, begins walking down the connecting corridor until he himself can hear their voices. Rising and falling, he hears their words. Jesus, Jesus which is precisely the moment the earthquake begins. Now, what you just heard is my imagined rendering of the latter half of Acts 16. This is in Philippi, when Paul and Silas are arrested, beaten, put in stocks, and yet worship. And I gave it to you from the other side, meaning that jailer's personal point of view, because What we're going to talk about today, the life of union, is maybe most radical when it's viewed by the outsider. When you and I abide in Jesus, when we draw on Jesus and his spirit to be our new inner life, when we start to walk in the confident steps of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of this world's day by day, it can be the lightest brush with the lost, just a smile the look of our eyes, the sound of our voice that changes everything. Our hunger for the heavenly begets hunger. Our inward intimacy, our thoroughgoing trust in the way of Jesus shows them something they have maybe only ever dreamed of, but never known. So, From the man who worshiped at midnight, and then, I love it, set off an earthquake that set, yes, the other prisoners, but also the jailer free. This is from Romans 8, and it's verses 2, 4, 10, 18, and 28. This is the life of union. For the new spiritual principle of life in Christ Jesus lifts me out of the old vicious circle of sin and death so that we are able to meet the law's requirements, so long as we are living no longer by the dictates of our sinful nature, but in obedience to the promptings of the Spirit. Now, if Christ does live within you, his presence means that your sinful nature is dead, but your spirit becomes alive because of the righteousness he brings with him. In my opinion, Whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. Moreover, we know that to those who love God, 
who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Friends, sometimes I think that the best way for us to grasp what we now have in this union life with Jesus is to consider, uh, let's say, what we used to have or, or didn't have when we used to live in disunion. So let's go back. For example, verse two, this is how it would read in the spirit of disunion from the Godhead. For the old fleshly curse of death outside of Christ Jesus kept me mired in the old vicious circle of sin and death. Like the lead jailer, like you before you knew the goodness of the Lord, the natural life of man is is really simply a, a cyclical affair. We are born, we live, we die. One generation goes, the next one comes. It's very Ecclesiastes. And actually, let's get even more daily, like more granular. It is wake up in the morning, Try to do your best all day, whatever that means. And yet, if you're even remotely intellectually and ethically honest about it all, the whole of human life seems to just spin on an axis of confusion, of competing senses of what's right and what's wrong, and of constant, at times, overwhelming strife. That is what disunion used to get us. But now listen again to what we've now got for the new spiritual principle of life in Christ Jesus lifts me out of the old vicious circle of sin and death. You are now new, spiritual, in Christ Jesus, lifted out of everything around you. Friends, Union with Jesus means you share the life of Jesus. And let's just keep going, shall we? Okay, so here's verse four in, again, that negative disunion past. Thus, we were not able to meet or ever dream of meeting the law's requirements because we were living naturally by the dictates of our sinful nature and had no concept of an obedience that might spring from the promptings of the Spirit, never having known the Spirit of God in the first place. Without Jesus, without the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, your only two options for attaining to God were, one, to religiously muscle out a solitary attempt to perfect yourself, or two, to ignore God and to make yourself your own God. Those are the only two options for humanity apart from Jesus. But now, again, listen to the posture of union. So that we are able to meet the law's requirements, so long as we are living no longer by the dictates of our sinful nature, but in obedience to the promptings, and I'll add here, the indwelling, inward-speaking promptings of the Spirit. Jesus has already made you able to fulfill the law. In him, it is finished. And he has redirected your path away from sin and has already given you his own spirit. Friends, union with Jesus means the end of the law, the beginning of the Holy Spirit age of mankind. 
Next. Well, here's verse 10, and again, in our past disunited context. Now, if Christ didn't live within you, your sinful nature would reign and your spirit would become deader and deader because of the fallout of your ongoing sinfulness. You know, when Jesus talked about the evil one stealing, killing, and destroying in John 10, he was also describing the inborn qualities of our sinful nature. Sin steals life from us. Sin kills our inner life. Sin destroys any possibility of spiritual growth. Kind of like a virus, it robs the life of its host, meaning us, and tends our every action in the direction of eternal death. But listen instead to what Jesus has done. Now, if Christ does live within you, his presence means that your sinful nature is dead, but your spirit becomes alive because of the righteousness he brings with him. Like personally, in my own little vocabulary of the spiritual life, I call this translation. And here's what I mean by that. When you and I give our lives to Jesus, we know that he gives us his own spirit, his own inner life. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? He translates the the alive, living, real human life of Jesus right from the throne room into our own human life. He causes Jesus himself, that, that wonderful bearded man from Nazareth, to relive his life again in you and in me. Christ lives within you. His presence is inside of you, ending sin. Your spirit is becoming alive in his righteousness, that righteousness that he brings by his life within you. Friends, union with Jesus is the invasion of your heart by Jesus himself. It's the inward becoming alive that he personally brings. And you know what? We just got to keep going. So again, here's who you used to be before you were in union with Jesus. This would be verse 18 inverted. In fact, whatever you used to deal with was always too much because you had no future and no God to look forward to. There was no seeming plan. Which, by the way, is where the evil one still loves to try to attack us. I would say one of the most uh, pernicious, infinitely subtle, like terribly dangerous spiritual attacks upon our life is where we fall into the same humdrum rhythm as the world around us. As Henry David Thoreau once read, wrote, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. That's from Walden. And frankly, it's to our infinite shame if we ever fall into thinking that's us. Because remember, this is who we are in union. In my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with what? The magnificent future God has planned for us. God has a magnificent future planned for you. Your present circumstances are less than nothing when compared with it. 
Friends, union with Jesus is everyday life with a plan. Union is the certainty of glory. And we can live that glory today. Which brings us to our final inverted verse. This is who you would have been if you continued to be stuck in disunion. Moreover, we see that to those without connection to God, disinterested in his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern of confusion. The human life is inherently confusing. Things that happen in the world don't seem to make sense. We find it difficult of ourselves to establish any ordering philosophy or pattern to it all. And if you think I'm wrong here, I would just say, take a meander through the thoughts of all what are considered to be the greatest sort of historical philosophers. And I would love for you to try to create a workable, practicable ethic based solely on all their contradictions. Or better yet, how about we just go ahead and live this to the full? Moreover, we know, we know that to those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Followers of Jesus of Nazareth know something. Followers of Jesus of Nazareth are called to something. Followers of Jesus of Nazareth are daily treading away that is part of a plan in which everything that happens tends daily and eternally toward good. Friends, union with Jesus is knowing the one who holds the plan in place. Union is the quiet certainty that he is good and all is well. So, if I was going to wrap it all up, I made some big statements throughout. Let me just wrap up with kind of my big statement for each of our verses. Union with Jesus means you share the life of Jesus. Union with Jesus means the end of the law, the beginning of the Holy Spirit age of mankind. Union with Jesus is the invasion of your heart by Jesus himself, the inward becoming alive that he personally brings. Union with Jesus is everyday life with a plan. Union is the certainty of glory, and we can live that glory today. And finally, union with Jesus is knowing the one who holds the plan in place. Union is the quiet certainty that he is good and all is well. Let's go live in union with Jesus today, shall we? Thanks for listening.